Well, good morning once again. We're glad that you're here. Welcome to a new year. Uh, it's good to have you all back as we kind of get started. My name is Pastor Milo. I haven't met all of you yet, and so it's really neat to see some new faces as you've come in the door. I, I'll be in the back there at the end of the service right uh, at our information center and be able to interact with each of you there. I'd love the opportunity to shake your hand uh, to meet with you. Uh, we're going to be starting a new sermon series uh, here as, as we go, but there's a couple other things of, of uh, one more announcement that we've got to tidy up before we move on, and that is that downstairs, right after the service, we still have Christmas explosion going on just below us right here. So we had this room we got cleaned up last Sunday. Uh, if you would stay after for just a little bit after the service this week, uh, we've got different places that all the stuff goes. We know where it goes. It just has to get there. And so... Uh, if you could help us with that process after our worship gathering this morning, that would be fantastic. Uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, you're going to need to open to the book of Jonah. You know exactly where it is. It's right in between the pages that you can never, ever find. So you might need to be able to use your table of contents there to be able to find your way there. Uh, the book of Jonah, it's an Old Testament book. You're going to find your way there this morning as we get uh, warmed up. Raise your hands. How many of you are familiar with the story of Jonah? Raise your hands. Uh, yep, yeah, that's almost everyone in the room. I think it's important for us to know, like, how familiar are you? Because I think the vast majority of us think that we're familiar with this book. Uh, the vast majority of us have heard the stories of this book. And this is part of the huge problem that over the next six weeks as we go through this sermon series in Jonah is that we have to kind of undo some of the work of what we think Jonah is about. And so what is the book of Jonah about? A great Fish, whale, no, we're going to get there this morning. That is not what this book is about, but that's what most of us think about it because not very many of us have thoughtfully read through the book. Not many of us have actually studied the book. Not many of us have actually done the work to realize what's really going on here. And so many of you uh, will have the opportunity to read through it uh, over the next few weeks. If you'll read through it each week as you come in, you'll be better set for what you do. But because of our children's stories, it kind of sets us up. So the book of Jonah is more than meets the eye. As we get beginning, as we kind of dive in, as we start to look. Oh, I said dive in. I just realized that's. Yes. All right. So as we're diving into the book of Jonah, it's more than meets the eye. Here's the first thing you know about the, the book of Jonah as we get started. It's more than a big fish. It's more than a big fish. I went. Uh, to a Christian school. I was raised in a Christian home. For elementary school, I was there. And of course, if you're going to do a, a play or a musical of any sort, it needs to be a story that's in the Bible. And so I remember being part of the play, uh, Jonah and the Big Fish, or the Big Whale. I can't remember what it was. And so from a set design standpoint, the hardest thing to come up with if you're doing this on stage is to try to figure out how are you going to bring a boat and a whale into your sanctuary. This is what we had to figure out. So little known fact, if you ever make your way to the dairy farm that I grew up on here in western New York, up high in the rafters of that barn, you will find the remnants of a ship in the rafters of that barn and a great fish. Because I got to be, because my dad made the set, I think, is ultimately what happened, but I got to be the main character. I got to be Jonah. And what happened was uh, th there was this big ship that was across the stage made out of cardboard and all other pieces of wood that we could find around. And so I was thrown off of the ship, but because we were really fancy at our church, 
uh, as I was thrown off the ship in the baptistry in the back, there was a very large weight that was also thrown into the baptistry at the same time to make the sound effect of the big splash. Never, never, if you think about the timing that it takes to throw a child out of a fake boat onto the stage and throw something into the baptistry in the back and make them splash at the same time, it's an impossibility. And we tried it over and over and over again. And of course, the night of the performance, it had a good laugh. I don't know if it had the same effect of what we got because I was well in the water by the time that the splash actually shocked everybody in the room. And then, of course, you have to figure out how do you swim across the stage. And so what ended up happening was that there was an office chair that I laid across, took the seat off the back of it, and I laid across the office chair, and there was one rope on one side of the office chair and one rope on the other side, and they pulled the office chair back and forth while I swam <laughs> on the stage. This is what it looked like. It was exactly like this. And that's what Jonah is about to most of us. I looked this week. You can pull it up if you want. It's up to you. If you look on Amazon and just look for Jonah. Stories, books about Jonah. What will you see? On the cover of every one of those books, you'll see a giant fish. You will see a story about a man being swallowed by a fish, something like that. And in, in most of our children's stories, the, the story doesn't even bother with what happens at the end of the book. So whether it's Veggie Tales or the Jesus Adventure Bible, it's always going to have this story about the big fish. But the book of Jonah is more than a big fish. How do I know that? Well, of all the chapters that are here in Jonah, there's only about one sentence, two verses, that say anything about a fish. Why is that all that we know? So the book of Jonah is not just about a great fish. Secondly, the book of Jonah is more than a great story. It's a good story, right? We can tell this story. It's, it's part of our sacred scriptures, however. It's part of God's holy word. And the purpose of the scriptures is not so that we can entertain our children. It's not just a good story. It's not just to teach us about this fish or the morality that might go in. The purpose of God's word is to reveal the very character and, and person of God. It's to reveal Jesus. It's to reveal his role in this universe and, and our role in supporting him in that. It is to give all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise to him. That's what every, Bible, every book in the Bible is there for, to reveal God. To reveal Jesus and his purpose for us. And that's exactly what Jonah does. Anything else, any other book, any other uh, musical, play, story, anything that, that focuses on anything other than that is missing the very point and message of the book. So again, this is what's hard for us as we come with our own presuppositions, uh, preconceived notions of what Jonah is about. It's a great children's story. And that's part of what's actually going on in the book. But to understand what's really going on beneath the surface, you do have to be an adult. You do have to be an adult. You do have to be able to understand some things that are happening between the lines. And it's actually one of the most brilliantly written uh, books in the Bible. The more that I've dug into it over the last few weeks, just to be able to see the complexity of what's here and the beauty and the brilliance of what's here. And Jonah, we can see him. He's represented, certainly, as a character in this story. But he's a, a character that represents God's people and what he wants to accomplish in them and the way that he is going to do his work in this world no matter what. The book of Jonah 
is more than a great story. The book of Jonah is more than a story about a bad prophet. If, you, if you've studied this at all, and we'll be studying it, you, you'll realize that Jonah's kind of a terrible person. He's pretty awful. As you go through page by page, he is a horrible person. Every chapter of this book exposes how awful that he is, a flawed person. Again and again and again in the book, we will read about how the pagan sailors humbled themselves, bowed before God with only a small amount of prompting. We will find how the pagan king, how he gathers all of Nineveh around him, and how they repent before God. We even find that the cows in the city are repenting before God and bowing before God. But not Jonah. Not Jonah. Jonah is forced to his knees, and even then he is very, very unwilling to be repentant. He's openly defiant of all the commands that God gives him throughout this book, which is kind of confusing, really. So why would we call him, then, a prophet of God? Here's, here's why we start to call him God's prophet. Here's why Jonah is one of the minor prophets in the Bible. The book opens by saying that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. So it starts in this fashion. It starts in this form. And if you've got your Bibles, you can look a couple of pages in either direction. And you'll see that the same opening lines are in all of the minor prophets. The Lord came to Micah. And then Micah goes on to share. And then what's interesting is how Micah then uh, describes what the Lord says and how he follows what the Lord says. And there are seven chapters in, in the book of Micah talking about this collection of poetry and all the different ways that he is trying to follow through on what God has commanded him to do. This poetic prophecy that he is giving to Israel. And this is the way that all the prophets speak. Whether it's Isaiah, Obadiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, they all kind of begin with this same phrase, that the word of the Lord came to them, or a vision of the Lord came to them, and this is how they responded. This is what Isaiah saw, and this is how he responded. That's how all the books of the prophets begin. And so when you, when you start to read it, you say, oh, I know, I know what kind of book I'm reading, because in our Bibles we have all these different forms of literature. It's a library of all these different forms. And a narrative that's telling a story is one form. About a third of the Bible is in that form. But there's poetic literature and then there's uh, literature about end times. There's all these different kind of literature that we actually read differently. We read poetry differently than we read the phone book. We just do. And there's Leviticus when you get to that in your annual Bible reading plan. It's kind of like the phone book. It's kind of like all these different things that are listed. And it's, if you read that in the same way, you'll be thrown off. But it's almost like the author is tricking us because he opens up the book by saying the word of the Lord came to Jonah. So you say, okay, I'm reading prophecy. Thus saith the Lord is what you expect to see and to read. But the first sentence throws you off. Everything in this book is, is wonky and that's kind of precisely the point. It's all inside out and upside down. The first sentence throws you off because you think I'm going to be reading this collection of thoughts from, from Jonah, <coughs> his poetic prophecy of what's happening, like any of the other books of prophecy, but that's not what you're going to get here. What you get is the story about a prophet. And so as you think and con contemplate that, is that, that God is working through all these different forms of Scripture. And so if we're going to see about a man who, who says he has heard a word from God, you have to understand how then is he responding to that? What is he going to do that. You have to, to read it. We have to read it and then reread it and then think about it and then reread it again to understand what is the message here and why are we missing it. This is not a message about a fish. No. It's more than a message. This is a message that's a much greater story. So it's not just a message. It's not just a story about a bad 
prophet. Equally, this is not a story. The book of Jonah is not uh, more, it is more than a big mistake. It's more than a big mistake. You can, you can look at the life of Jonah, you can look at what he was doing, and you say, he made this big mistake. He was supposed to do what God told him to do, and he went a different direction. He chose a different path in life, and the rest of his life, it changed what he had to deal with in the day in and the day out. And that's what we take. We take that application in our own lives, and we say, all right, make sure that as you go through life, you don't make a decision that is an irreversible decision that is going to change the rest of the trajectory of your life. We say make good decisions, don't make bad decisions. Make healthy decisions, don't make unhealthy decisions. If God is telling you to do something, do it. Don't not do it. But that's not what this is about. We're missing it there. Because if this is just a bad decision, a bad choice, then why is it that God is so invested? And why is it that we are we're reading on page after page after page the way that Jonah just cannot seem to get it right? See, what's going to happen here as we are reading through who we presume to be the villain of the story? We presume that Jonah is the villain of the story, or at least a messed up character, if nothing else. And as we are reading through it, we say, man, Jonah, you are an idiot. Why don't you just do what God has told you to do? Why, why are you willing to put yourself through all of these things? And what happens, particularly at the end of the book? It's just like you're watching one of those spy movies. Or there's this big epic scene at the end of the book where the villain of the story, the SWAT team has them. They have him surrounded. They're on the buildings and he's in the center of the street and he's got all the red dots that are on his chest. And then there's this powerful interchange between two characters in the street and all of a sudden something happens and all those red dots shift. And they move over to who you thought was the good guy. But really he was the one the whole time. That's exactly what's going to happen here. As we read through the book of Jonah, you're going to be pointing fingers at Jonah. Maybe you're pointing fingers at Nineveh, and those red dots are going to shift. And as you look at all of a sudden, it's going to hit you in the chest. It's going to hit you in the chest. This story is about me. This story is about mankind and the depravity of man and the sin nature that, that resides in me, but for the grace of God. So Surgeon General's warning We've got some chapters to work through, and every chapter is going to be a gut punch. The red dots are going to land on your chest and land on my chest. We're going to realize what it is to walk away, run away, defy a holy God and what that means. See, the book of Jonah is actually a tale of two hearts. That's what we're calling this sermon series. It's a tale of two hearts, the heart of God and the heart of man. The heart of God and the heart of man. The heart of God is, is willing to do anything to pursue the lost. Those who are far from him, God is willing to do anything to bring them back to him. And the heart of man is deceitfully ugly. We will do anything and everything we possibly can to get as far away from that calling as we possibly can. But for the grace of God. So let's look into it. Let's see how it actually comes to fruition. Here's the first thought for us this morning that has to do that. Sometimes we love God's messaging and we run to him. Sometimes we love what God has to say. Sometimes you love the sermon that the pastor preaches. Sometimes you love what you've read in your morning devotions and you want to go out and tell everybody about it. You love what has been shared here 
this morning. You want to tell everyone you possibly can about it. God is going and, and God is calling Jonah to go and preach a message of repentance to Nineveh. But this is not the first mission that Jonah was given. Jonah's living during a time where Israel had been split. There's the two kingdoms, uh, the, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. He lives in the north. So the, the northern kingdom has these 13 consecutive terrible kings. And they are disobedient in the sight of God. They are suffering. God has every right to punish him. They have turned their back on him. But he sees their suffering and he is merciful. And this is where we first see Jonah in the Bible. Just a little verse. And you, you probably read through it at some point in your life. And you thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder who Jonah is. You marked it down and you just moved on. It's really the only reference that we get to him. It's over in 2 Kings chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. We've got it for you here on the screen. So verse 25 says, He, which is Jeroboam the second, this is the second king Jeroboam, uh, restored the boundaries of Israel from Labo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah. The son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath, Hepfer. The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. What an incredible calling! So Jonah's first message that he was challenged to give, he was taking it to this terrible leader, Jeroboam II, and a succession of 13 leaders who would actually run Israel into the ground. And he gets to come to them and tell them and give them the message that the boundaries of Israel were going to be restored. He was going to tell the northern kingdoms that they would regain these territories that had been previously lost in all their military conquests and what they had lost. And he was going to give and deliver this good news to Israel. This assignment was one that he followed through on so much so there's nothing else to be said. He followed through. He gave the word. There's the most popular person now in the kingdom of Israel. Because he gives the good news. He walks in and he says, God has told me that we are going to grab all that land that was been taken from us. We are going to have that restored in the lifetime of Jeroboam. Now he, he says this to a person who's a terrible king. There's other prophets that actually prophesy against what Jonah is saying. And, and while what Jonah uh, prophesies to happen does come true, within moments it seems like it all comes undone again. And Jeroboam is a is a terrible person. So again, this, this kind of baseline of who Jonah really is, under the surface, he's a, pretty, he's a pretty awful prophet. He actually relishes in the fact that he gets to give the good news that God's land, that the people of Israel are going to be triumphant again, regardless of the fact of who that person is up front. But just like Jonah, sometimes, sometimes we love God's messaging. We disregard all the other kind of inconvenient parts of God's messaging, the way that, that uh, our people are living in sin or the way that uh, we need to repent from 13 successive kings who have just completely obliterated the kingdom. Because after all, the Bible is good news. It's filled with great and precious promises. So we want to tell everyone about it. But a pursuit of God does not always serve up the message that we want to hear. Sometimes God calls us out of our comfort zone. And this is where we find the second message that Jonah was given. So here's the second point. Sometimes we reject God's message and we run from him. So sometimes we accept it, we embrace it, and we run towards him. We say, I can't wait to tell everybody about this. But sometimes we reject what God is saying. 
See, we can look at passages like this, we can look at scripture like this, and we can say, I cannot believe that God spoke directly to Jonah, and he went in the opposite direction. How could he do this? When we have in front of us, particularly in the New Testament, absolutely decisive and clear things that we are not to be doing. And we walk out of the church, we walk into our everyday lives, and we absolutely obliterate what message has been given to us. This is how it happens in Jonah. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. He headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed to Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, if you've studied this before, again, most children's stories do cover this. You couldn't get any farther away from Nineveh than Tarshish. If Nineveh is on this side of the stage, the map would actually be reversed. So let me do it this way. So if Nineveh is on this side of the stage and there was a train line or a boat ferry line or anything like that, it's the last stop on the line in that direction as far as he could possibly go, and then hopefully he could go even farther than that. Tarshish was absolutely as far away as he could possibly get from where God had called him and very clearly told him. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, go to Nineveh, and he went to Tarshish. Days and days and days travel away from the place that he was supposed to to be going. God wasn't calling him to give another message to the Israelites that was positive. Instead, he was going to be giving a message to the Ninevites. Giving a message to the Ninevites who were a pagan people. At the time, Nineveh was one of the largest cities in the world. So wherever we think of that today, whether that's Los Angeles or New York or Mexico City, some massive city that we kind of have in our mind, uh, in that the the world's largest cities, and and we're going to find out later that it's going to take him a three days journey to walk across the city. It's a very large city. And you can go, actually, the Nineveh uh, ruins still exist. They're in Iraq near Mosul. Now, many of them were damaged uh, uh, in recent years with um, ISIS being there. But the ruins are still there. This is a massive city on a massive scale. And now Jonah is being called to be the bearer of bad news. And instead of responding in obedience and going to Nineveh, what's he do? He runs. He flees, it says here. He went the opposite way. He ran away from the Lord. He sailed for Tarshish so that he could flee from the Lord, go in the opposite direction. Later we're going to learn in chapter 4, verse 2, the real reason why he left is because he knows that God is going to be compassionate. And he couldn't stand the thought that God was going to redeem and restore or help in any way, any fashion, the people of Nineveh. He does not want Israel's enemies to be let off the hook. Nineveh was the enemy. God was telling him to go to the enemy and invite them to repent before God. Jonah, being a prophet, would have preferred he could go to his own people all day long, prophesy anywhere he could possibly prophesy, but not Nineveh. They were terrible people. And they were. They were cruel and horrible people. The stories of what they would do to people in battle, the way that they would take, after, after winning a battle, they would take uh, the, the survivors of the battle, and then they would come and they would skin them alive and then paste them on the sides of the walls in the city as a warning anyone else who would dare defy Nineveh. These are terrible people. Jonah loved Israel. 
Jonah loved his people, his nation. He would, he would want nothing more for his people to succeed in returning the favor to God. But don't send me to Nineveh. Some commentaries I was reading about, uh, they talk about Jonah as an activist, really. If it were a modern day, Jonah might even have had a, a ball cap that said, make Israel great again. This idea, this concept, this, this thing that he really wanted Israel to succeed. So, so don't send me there. I don't want to see them succeed. How could God possibly be telling me to go to the enemy, ask them to repent? How would I look if I were to do that? How, how am I going to explain that? I went all the way over to Nineveh. And, and, and I went all the way, and that's not just a walk across town either. That I spent all the time, all the effort, all the money to go to Nineveh. Now for him to go to Nineveh to obey God was hundreds of hundreds of miles. There was no planes, there's no combustible engines. Like he's going to have to walk there. It's a very committed journey. And when he gets there, he's going to have to proclaim the very word of the Lord and tell the people to repent and come back. Why would he want to do that? These are the enemies of our nation. But this is where God tells him to go. He tells them to go and share the word that they are to repent. And so what does he do? He goes the other direction. He is trying to get as far away as he could possibly get from his mission. And you know this. You know this story. But sometimes like Jonah, we too will push back. We will push against God's messaging and we will try to run. We want to accept the good news. We want to reject the bad. We want to pursue God on our own terms. And when we don't like it, we don't like what he has to say, then we hightail it and we run. We flee. Unfortunately, we can always seem to find a boat that's headed in the absolutely wrong direction. And sometimes we don't see, third point here, that our choices create collateral damage. Collateral damage. So it's, it's common knowledge, for those of you who, again, are familiar with the story, that Jonah, him being defiant of God, it nearly costs him his life. We're going to get there in the coming weeks. It nearly costs him his life. But few people remember that his disobedience puts the lives of many others in jeopardy. It, as these innocent bystanders, the people on this ship, these pagan sailors, uh, it puts them right in the center of the bullseye in many ways. He boards this boat for Tarshish. Again, in our kids' stories, I don't know if you remember like the little drawings that come in it. You see like Jonah's like hiding away in a basket in the boat. It, he paid for his fare. Like he, he didn't have to hide. He was there. He was there and he was doing his thing. And he's going to Tarshish and the crew is now in harm's way. It wasn't long before its crew was in a world of hurt. Look at this. Verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind onto the sea. It was such a violent storm, it arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. They are terrified. So consider this scene from the sailors' perspective. They didn't invite Jonah onto their boat. They didn't invite him into their story. He just showed up. He paid his fare. He walked into the boat, just like many of the other people did. Little did they know about his disobedience and that he was a prophet and all the disobedience that was going to cause them trouble, great material, great emotional loss, even to the point that now they were risking their very lives because of his sin. And like Jonah, our own bad choices, our own bad decisions, our own sin creates collateral damage as well. Our disobedience does not only affect ourselves, with the people around us. There's always, always, always a ripple effect. 
The Bible tells us the wages of sin is what? Death. And our sin always brings loss, emotional loss, physical loss, relational loss, spiritual loss to us and to all the people around us. So if this story really isn't about Jonah, if this story really isn't a great story about a great fish, who's it about? Well, really, this is a great story about a great God. When we want to run, God wants to rescue. When we want to hightail it and run and go as far as we possibly can, God wants to rescue. God knows who Nineveh is. He is well aware that these are horrible people, guilty of atrocious things, and yet he is offering them grace. He is offering them love. He is offering them salvation because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God loves Nineveh. And Jonah doesn't want to deal with that. And at our core, at our root, at at who we really are, often we don't want to actually deal with that as well. That God, that his love extends to the uttermost parts of the earth. No matter who they are, what they've done, what their background is, God wants to rescue and repair and restore those who are farthest from him. This is the difference between the heart of God and the heart of man. This week has been an emotional week for us here in Buffalo, just as sports fans, but Buffalo, the city as a whole. Uh, If you don't know what's going on, it's been a hard week because one of our players last week, Jamar Hamlin, had a a normal everyday random tackle that he had on the field, and all of a sudden his heart stopped. And it appeared that he died there on the field in Cincinnati with all of his fans around him, all of his uh, team around him, but it, it was over in a moment, in a second, and, and, and everyone who is watching, myself included, I'm sure you as well, if you were watching or if you watched the replay, you're stunned, you're shocked, you don't know how to respond, you don't know what you do. It very much seemed like this young man, 24 years old, had lost his life playing the game he loved, but this was it. In the hours the days that followed, particularly in the, the immediate aftermath that followed, there's this tremendous outpouring of love for him and his family. Obviously, the page that was set up with a goal at one point of $2,500, right, that was going to be raised. He set this up before he was even an NFL athlete. He was still in college trying to do something good for his hometown uh, back at home. It was called Chasing M's. I'm sure you've heard this as well. Chasing M's, chasing millions is what it stood for. And now in the midst of this tragedy, while he is laying in a hospital bed, millions of dollars have come in. But here's what shakes us on this. Is that in all of these responses, and this includes us as well, in all of these responses, that the stunned silence that we are in, that we have no control over what happens on this earth, in this moment, or the next. The reality of that sends ripple effects throughout anyone who is watching, paying attention. And what do we do? 
You see, we actually get a reputation. Buffalo gets a reputation in this. It says, this is the most loving city. Look how they are loving this man. But the reality is, this is the most self-serving thing we can do. To actually try to control the situation, to try to say, God, you did this thing, and now we're going to try to do something to kind of push back against her. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to respond. I'm going to, like, like, like what's happening right here? These sailors are out in the middle of the ocean. They don't know what to do, and they're all praying to God or whoever they're praying to. Isn't that what we just saw? Prayers, thoughts being offered, prayers and thoughts, prayers and concerns to anyone, anyone up there where we're praying. Don't miss the fact that God is in control and that he loves us in a way that we could never possibly imagine. And we want and we desire and we hope for this young man to be able to pop back out of the bed, to, to move on with his life. And those, like, like, don't get me wrong in that. But I think in a similar way to maybe even the days for here in Buffalo particularly, because of what this city has been through over the last few years, I believe that there's a moment similar to the moment that happened after 9-11 in our country where people just had to stop and realize just for a moment that God is in control and we are not. And there's absolutely nothing we can do about that. See, what happens is in the uncomfortability of that moment, we want to run. We want to flee. We want to just let me do something to make this moment stop. And in the middle of that, God says, no, I want to rescue he says, I want to rescue Nineveh. But really, he's saying, I want to rescue you, Joan. I'm going to rescue you from yourself. See, God is working in his heart as he is working in our hearts as well. The wages of sin is death. As we look at this passage, we want to run, but God wants to rescue. The wages of sin is death. A dead man does not run. I, in Hamlet's case, maybe that's a little bit hard to figure out. But a dead man does not move, does not run, does not blink. Wages of sin is death. This morning the call is to stop running. And the reality is, is that neither you nor I in our own strength can do that. We do exactly what Jonah does. We may follow along for a while as long as it's convenient for us. And then we turn and we go a different direction because it's really hard. But for the grace of God. See, the Old Testament is here. The prophecies are here. The, the reason that this exists, the reason that we need to study this passage is so that we make a beeline for the cross. We absolutely need a Savior. Because no matter what, we always come up short, but for the grace of God. Wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We don't need the New Testament. If we can just knuckle down and live our lives a little bit better, a little bit more like God wants us to live. We can't do it. We want to run. And God continues to rescue over and over and again and again. And he rescues the most despicable of us. Put me, your pastor, at the front of the list. And yet, but for the grace of God, he saved me. And he saved you as well. As the band comes forward this morning, 
We're going to do something different here in this Jonah series. Uh, we're going we're to look at the new year a little bit differently and how we close our services. And it's going to seem at first a little bit old-fashioned to you in many ways. It is. And I'm acknowledging even that I'm, I'm, I'm beginning this transition to say I'm even a bit uncomfortable uh, in this time. But it's been done since the Revolutionary War, before the Declaration of Independence, where we are called to come forward in an altar call to be able to say God is doing something in us. If we're going to be a church, and we talk about this often, there's going to be a heritage of faith for the next generation. If we expect God to move in this city and move in our hearts, then we might need to be willing to move our feet and respond to what God is doing. And so for many of us, and I put myself in this category, this may feel a little bit out of date, and that's okay. But for some of you, it actually feels not just out of date, it feels out of bounds. Like, no, you, you're, you're not allowed to do that. Because we get a presupposition that what's happening in your heart and in your mind and your life is between you and God and it's nobody else's business. And that's actually a misunderstanding of what God has called us to be uh, in the local church. Aren't we here to pray for one another? Aren't we here to challenge one another, to encourage one another, to, to actually prod one another on towards good deeds? In Hebrews chapter 10 it says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards loving and of good deeds. Let us not give up the habit of meeting together. That's why we're here. Let us encourage one another all the more as you see that day approaching. So how this will work is, is in just a moment you'll hear the band play. I'll encourage you to stand and to sing. We're going to sing through the first couple of verses of our closing song. I'm going to come down here. I'll stand here uh, in the front. If you'd like to come forward, I'd love the opportunity to pray for you or encourage you to, I put a few seats down here as well. If, if we need to sit and I can invite an elder to come pray with you as well. We're just going to take a few moments. And then we'll move on. We'll finish the song. The band will kind of finish the song and we'll, we'll move on together with the rest of our day. But we just want to make sure that there is a moment to respond. So if you would, would you stand as we sing together, considering the fact that most of us are on the run in one way or another. Some of you have never met Christ before, never asked him into your life, or if you have, you're unsure as to whether that has changed the focus and trajectory of your life. Others of you, you're confident in that. You know that you've given your life over to God at some point. But you're realizing and, and, and knowing God's word is prompting in you and helping you to realize that, that you continue to battle something that you have no business battling. He has already won that battle. He's in charge. So as we sing together, would you test your hearts? And if you, if you need to move, I encourage you. If you don't, that's okay. You can pray from where you are for the people who do need to move. If you need to write something down in a connection card as well, we'll give the opportunity to respond in that way. Let's sing together, please.